Brandon, darling. I'm on a podcast. I love you. I love Sydney. I love you, my darling. Love you, my I'm on, I, I will. I'm on Unorthodox. They're fabulous. Liel, Mark, and Stephanie. Fast line. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. And I am Mark Oppenheimer, your lonely host in my basement, introducing this year's Rosh Hashanah episode all by myself. Friends, it has been a tough year. It's been a tough couple years. And I want to give you some happy thoughts today. Here's the first. The first is that a few years ago, I was talking to a young fellow who had been a couple years behind me in college, who is now a big shot rabbi. And I'm always a little intimidated when I'm around him. His knowledge of Hebrew is greater than mine. His knowledge of Talmud is infinitely greater. His knowledge of uh, people is greater too. He's one of those people who has the book intelligence, but then also has the social intelligence. He's just kind of someone I admire. And the fact that he's years younger than I am makes me a little abashed to admire him as much as I do. But I happened to bump into him in Manhattan, if you can believe it, where people seldom just bump into each other. And we were walking and I said to him, he's somebody who does a lot of work with young people. I said, Rabbi, no, I didn't. I used his first name, but we'll call him uh, Joel, even though that's not his name. I said, Joel, when you're working with a young person who's new to Judaism, I mean, they're Jewish, but they're, they're interested in learning more. What do you hope for them? And he said, oh, that's really simple. And what I thought he'd say was, oh, I, I know that I've made progress with them if they're keeping kosher, or I really hope that they begin fasting on Yom Kippur, or, um, you know, maybe I want them to be Shomer Shabbos. And that's not what Joel said. Here's what Joel said to me. He said, I feel like they have grown in their Judaism when they begin living the calendar. And, and I, immediately I knew what he meant by that. What he meant was there's a moment in the life of anyone curious about Judaism, whether observant or non-observant, orthodox, secular, reconstructionist, renewal, secular humanist, reform, conservative, whatever. There's a moment in the life of anyone who's getting more interested in Judaism when their calendar, their internal calendar shifts and they no longer see the year as beginning on January 1st and ending December 31st. Or for a lot of people, um, they no longer see it as an academic year. Well, it begins around Labor Day. It ends around Memorial Day. They begin to think of it instead or also as the Jewish year. That is to say, they feel in the early fall, oh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and maybe Sukkot or Sukkot are coming around. They have a sense that they're coming up on Passover. They have a sense in May, oh, Shavuos, Shavuot, somebody's going to invite me for cheesecake, dairy goods. Maybe they have a sense in July or August, Tisha B'Av, that's a sad day. It can start with just one. It can start with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and, and Hanukkah and Passover probably, but it grows a little bit into maybe one of the other holidays. And even if it just stays at Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, Hanukkah, whatever, the point is they begin thinking of the year as structured around those days rather than Christmas and Easter or federal holidays or the academic year. Or maybe they have all these calendars running synchronously in their mind, but the Jewish calendar is one of them. And for some reason, that's what I've been thinking about because I think we could all use a new year right now. And I'm not a particularly learned Jew and I'm not particularly observant, but somewhere along the way, if anything, because I've been doing this work with this podcast, I began living the calendar, as my friend Rabbi Joel put it. And that's my wish for all of you, right? 
You need a new year. We all deserve to start a new year. Let's not wait for 2022. We're starting 5782 this week. A new beginning, New Year's resolutions, apologies to people who need them, the chance to look forward to a bunch of holidays in the coming month and then Hanukkah a little bit later, right? Like now's a good time. None of us wants to wait till January. And as Jews, we don't have to wait till January. So my wish for you is not that you take on more commandments, not that you become more Shomer Shabbos, not that you learn a, a little bit of Hebrew or Talmud. All of those are fine. Not that you become more ethical, though I wish that for all of us, right? That we begin living more of the mitzvot about not putting a, a stumbling block before the blind, about tithing to the those who need it, the poor, about setting aside parts of our vineyards and orchards for the needy, all of that. But if I could wish one thing for you that is obtainable, that is doable right now, it's that you start thinking about the calendar, that you start living the calendar. Because you know what? Having a calendar that's different from the academic calendar or the legal January 1st calendar or God help us, the fiscal year, right? Having a calendar that's about Judaism, I think that'll just be good for all of our souls, right? Like, let's just agree on that. Okay, so here's the second thing I want to give you. My, my second present to you on this, uh, the beginning of 5782. And that is, I want you not to think about politics as we do this week's episode. Fortunately, um, I have no co-hosts here to argue with. I have no guests to provoke me. What I have are three segments that have been recorded over the past six months or so that are going to just bring you lots of joy because they're about the arts. They're about um, creativity and the spirit. A quick roundup is a little theatrical laughter, a little music, a little literary talk. Let's do that. Let's not worry. Let's not worry for the next hour about all of the news alerts that you're getting on your phone. For the next hour, you have to recharge and you should recharge. And that's what we're here for. That is what this podcast is giving you. You listen to the next hour and you will laugh and you will then dance and you will think. And I think you might be a little bit more ready to hop on that calendar and begin your new year. Back in May, we had an incredible live show with Tova Feldshu, the actress who you know from her work on Broadway in Pippin, whom you know from her one-woman show as Golda Meir, whom you know from playing the mom in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, it was phenomenal. And we got to talk with her about her new memoir, Lilyville, and also our favorite Tova moments from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Golda's Balcony, and The Walking Dead. So this is from last May. I'm so glad that we finally have a chance to play it for you. This is Unorthodox Live with Tova Feldshu. You can make it alone, but just so you know, we leave no one behind. Our mothers and fathers who weathered the storms grew strong in the trials of their times. So we brothers and sisters, the door by door. Speaking of the culture, I think we should bring on our guest this week. Can we bring up the video on one Tova Felchu. Uh, Tova Felchu, welcome back to Unorthodox. I've been on for 20 minutes now listening to you guys. You're fabulous. 
And I said, I can't see myself. Tova, this is an incredible treat for us to have you back on our show at the second live show you've been with us for, this one obviously on Zoom. Where are you coming from? Where in the world is Tova Feldshu right now? I'm in my dressing room, children. I'm in my dressing room. I am in Solana Beach, California. I flew out here because I'm going to do a one-woman show on Dr. Ruth Westheimer called Becoming Dr. Ruth, and it will be filmed. So I'm very excited because I'm in the third act of my life and I like my my work to be filmed. And so there we are. That's what I'm doing. I'm rehearsing. So we are going to get into Lilyville, this amazing book and all the stories within it and all your great work. How do you inhabit Dr. Ruth? I mean, she's such a character. What, 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 what was your process? Well, Dr. Ruth was an orphan of the Holocaust, not a victim of the Holocaust. And she has a German, Swiss, Hebrew, French, American accent. And she is so optimistic because optimism is, is a choice. And as Lily would say, happiness is a choice. So Dr. Ruth is so optimistic that all the ends of her sentences go up. They go up like that. How are you, Stephanie? How are you, Liel? How are you, Mark Oppenheim? And how is Miss Godot without her finger? How's she doing without her finger? Anyway, so uh, you get under the character. You figure out what motivate. How, how did she survive? And the survivors who survived that trauma are usually rather extraordinary. And two of them I know, Dr. Edith Eager, who won the Jewish Book Award for her book, The Choice. I narrated that and I narrated The Gift for her and, and Ruth Westheimer. Also, I love Ruth Westheimer because she stands up straight. And before this, I played Ruth Bader Ginsburg and had to almost get chiropractic help. And when I was with the Supreme Court Justice and I said, Madam Justice, how do you want to be remembered? I'm going to be your voice in the universe. And she said, I want people to know I'm funny. That was <laughs> So um, how do I inhabit them? I, I, I love it. Been doing it for 50 years. I take a vacation for myself. And when you get somebody like Westheimer, who is so optimistic, so doesn't give up, it's a privilege to be inside uh, her shoes. And it's a privilege to have studied my mother, Lily, the greatest role of my career. I want to make Lilyville. I want to make Lilyville a, a television series. Lilyville is an amazing book. And I want to start the discussion with it. It, it really, I mean, we read a lot of, of, of books with the show. And yeah, sometimes we're gripped, sometimes we're not. This just made me stop everything and just wonder at it. I, I, I want to start the discussion with one scene that just, I, I, I can't stop thinking about. You're a young girl. You're, you're going, believe, either the Philharmonic or, or the opera. And you left the house and you're making all the turns. You're about to go on the highway from Scarsdale to, to drive to Manhattan. And you sheepishly reveal to your mother that you had forgotten your white gloves. What happens next and why does it matter? When I told mommy we were going to the Young People's Concerts conducted by Leonard Bernstein at the old Metropolitan Opera House, which was gorgeous. And of course, nowadays it would have never been torn down. The acoustics were astonishing. So we were on our way. And I realized I forgot my white gloves. And I said, Mommy, I forgot my white gloves. And she slammed on the brakes of the Chrysler, did a U-turn, back up the driver, and she said, Terry Sue, we don't go to New York without our white gloves. And I grabbed those wristlets, that's what they were called, because they stopped here, and ran back in the car. They were on the counter of our kitchen, and we made it to the concert. She likes to go early because the Chrysler was big. It was like a boat. And I don't want to pay for a garage. They're so expensive already. I'm paying for the tickets. It's enough already. So I don't know if we found a parking space that day, but if we didn't, she would have pulled into a garage. And we heard Leonard Bernstein and 
I got introduced to classical music, which was very important to both my parents. Tell us a little bit about Lillian and growing up with. Well, Lillian Sydney were children of immigrants. My father from a wealthy Austrian German family, my mother from a Russian English family that were not well off. And uh, she put herself through NYU. She worked and she paid for it herself. She was the first child of her four sisters to go to university. And there she met Sidney Felchu, who probably was slated to go to the Ivy League, but he lost his father in his senior year and everything collapsed for that family. And he went to his local school, which was a New York University College of Arts and Sciences. And they met when they were 17 and 18 because they both entered NYU in those days at 16 because it was rapid advance. What happened is that part of being American, this was even true of Golda Meir, and she arrived in Milwaukee. The first thing that happened was that her father said she looked like a greener, and he took them right to a department store and reclothed them from the clothes they had worn as immigrants from Russia. So my grandfather was a master uh, tailor. He cut the patterns that would make men's clothing, and my grandmother was a seamstress, and children had to look right they had to be American, and America was the golden of Medina. And no matter what your poverty level was, you didn't dress like a slob. If you dressed like a bum, you were a bum. So clothes weren't clothes. Clothes were emblematic of how you carried yourself in this new country and how you were going to forge ahead on your own path toward um, the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of success without the presence of pogroms. Tova, we know you as Tova Felchu. We love you as Tova Felchu. You were born Terry Sue. So can you tell us how you became Tova, how you got into the world of theater, of, of drama, of the arts, and, and how Lily felt about all of those, those moves? Well, when Hachette asked me to write a, a memoir, I'm sure they wanted, you know, what was sparkling opening nights and backstage love affairs and the arduous rehearsals and the glamour of Hollywood and New York. And instead, they got fed the longest and most uh, profound role of my career, a role I never auditioned for, which is, of course, was Lillian Kaplan Felch's daughter. The It wasn't a tragedy. The sadness of my mother's and my first 25 years together, it took us 40 odd years to really become intimate. And then we, we were on the same side of the street until she died, uh, was that my mother was not verbal. My mother subsumed herself to my father, who was even called Sonny. Sidney Felcher was called Sonny by his mother, and she gave him the son, you know, the pun of it, she gave him the son, and your fate was sealed by the match you made. And she was a great wife, and she was a very dutiful mother. Just one thing, she didn't tell us she loved us. She didn't say, I love you. That simple thing, that verbal need of a child. So it, when that breast was tucked away in her bra after six weeks of breastfeeding, never to come out again, there are consequences. Her heart was tucked away. And how much of a yucky could she have been? She was Russian, mm. half Russian and half English. Maybe it was the British part of her, her mother. But she was tied to the vest. And she had a very verbal child. My father was a litigator. My father knew death. He lost his father at 16. And then he fought in World War II and was switched from the infantry to intelligence because he was fluent in German. Saved my father's life, fluency in German. So he had unbridled affection and expressed it in a way I could understand. And my mother did not. So I created a whole fantasy world to keep me company. I, I looked mm. in the mirror at three and I said, are you real? Do you really exist? I was named Harry Sue after my great aunt Tova, who died early from tuberculosis. My great grandmother, Sarah Abrahams in London, who lived a very long life. 
And people were always named Terry Sue and Debbie Reynolds. And, you know, you were part of the American lifestyle. Children in my era were not named Hannah and Noah and uh, whatever. They certainly, you know, and now everything's back. Sophie's back, Harry's back, even the old American names, the old fashioned names. But people were not given names like Ari. They didn't exist at Quaker Ridge School or in Scarsdale High, I can tell you that. So then Terry Sue uh, Felcher becomes Tova Felcher, the greatest actress of this or any other generation. How does Lily take this, this, this sudden kind of fame and ascendance? Is it strange for her? Is she happy? Is she a little bit weirded out? I told her I was changing my name from Terry to Tova because I had fallen in love with Michael Fairchild, who wasn't even from our faith. And he said, what kind of a name is Terry Sue for you? You're a Northern Jew. And I, I don't get it. Also, Remember, my friends at school, Debbie became Deborah, Barbie became Barbara, right? Judy became Judith, and Terry became Terry. And then Terry in French is a boy's name. Terry in Spanish doesn't exist, so you're Teresa. In French, you're Therese. Uh, the only place it exists in its own beautiful, beautiful uh, orb was in its Hebrew form. So I said to Michael Fairchild, well, I was called Tova in Sunday school, embarrassed to tell him Hebrew school. Embarrassed, right? Tovens and this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant who's, whose heritage came from England in the 1600s to this country, whose grandfather went to Yale in a horse and buggy uh, carriage as my grandfather was coming in steerage to the United States and passing the Statue of Liberty. He said, Tova, now that's a name. So I changed my name from Terry to Tova. It was a love name between us. Then my last document of Terry Sue Felcher was graduation from Sarah Lawrence. And then I decided to keep Tova on my way to the Guthrie. I had won a scholarship from the McKnight's to McKnight Fellowship in Acton. And I said, Mommy, I'm going to change my name from Terry back to my Hebrew name, Tova. We didn't come to this country for you to name yourself Tova. Sydney, get over here. Your last name is un un unpronounceable. Now your first name is going to be unpronounceable. Who's going to know what Tova Felcher is? They're going to change the H's to N's. You'll be tuna vulture. Who's going to know? Um, that was her reaction. That was her reaction. And in fact, I got to the Guthrie and Tova ended up being a Danish name. So that I would, they thought I was Tova Felcher, a local girl from Minneapolis and St. Paul from Scandinavia, the Hida. And it wasn't until I got to New York that the state of Israel fell on my head. And stupid, I mean, I'm not stupid. I rode the horse in the direction it was carrying me. I was in the chorus of Cyrano and my perceived value as a Tova Felchu when I had 14 lines in a red dress and one scene alone with a great, great Christopher Plummer who has always been very kind to me. May he rest in peace. Was that a Tova Felchu that, you know, Shakespeare says, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Not true. It's a lot in the name because it's shorthand for you. Stephanie Butnick and Mark Oppenheimer and Liel Leibowitz, these have a certain tenor that we take shorthand and make decisions about you before we even hear you speak. So what Tova felt you was foreign. She made Israeli. She is orthodox and she's a maven about Judaism. I was none of these. I was a cheerleader from, from a Quaker Ridge school, you know, and uh, played the field hockey for Scarsdale High and wasn't even Shomer Shabbos. But when I was auditioning for a role like Yentl and showed up with diligence in the right outfit. I think I was wearing a robe as a kittle and high boots. 
and took my hair to my hair and put it in front and wore a cap from, from that you would wear in Fiddler, which I wasn't in. I was in Yen. We have never he asked you if you're in Fiddler. asking me if I was We've in never Fiddler. We've never asked you. Was never in Fiddler. Because we know I you. In, That's right. Of course not. <laughs> because you're Mark Oppenheimer. <laughs> I am with my Beta Kappa of, of Unorthodox. I am with my Beta Kappa. <laughs> So uh, anyway, I, when I auditioned for Yentl, I got it. And I went from the chorus to the marquee of the of the Eugene O'Neill Theater, where they're doing Book of Mormon or will be, I hope, again. And it was a real thrill. So I played, you know, Queens of Henry VIII. I played Catherine Hepburn, I'm birth to death. But my breakthrough roles were of great Jewish heroines. And then one led to another, from Yentl to Helena Slomov and Holocaust to Lillian Kantrowitz in A Walk on the Moon, to the beloved Judy Stein mm-hmm. in, um, in Kissing Jessica Stein, to Golda Meir. I also played Stella Adler. I played Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, and also played Deanna Monroe, not a Jew, in uh, Alexandria mm-hmm. in, in The Walking Dead. And of course, Naomi Bunch. And like many Jewish mothers, she felt she had to fix you in order to save you. So you played Golda Meir, you've played Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you're playing Dr. Ruth. Are there any other like Jewish female legends that you still want to take on? Not really. I wouldn't mind playing St. Joan. I really missed that opportunity. I was doing set of up. I got roles in my time that would we would not be cast now because Black Lives Matter, people of color matter, and they're not going to give me a Brazilian to play where I had to put on Egyptian too, like Lena Horne, to show up on stage. But I had the great privilege in 78 and 79 of playing that great heroine and getting getting a nomination again, uh, because the greater the transformation, the greater the actor gets credit. Better to play Rosalind than Celia. Better to play Viola, you know, Viola in Twelfth Night. The greater the transformation, if you can fulfill that. Which brings me to my mother's attitude about my career. When I asked to go to Juilliard, she said, you're not going to a trade school. (laughs) So she looked at that like, let's say, carpentry, which I think actually is a fine art as well. And when I took her to Pippin, where... I, you know, you put an old bird hanging upside down on a trapeze singing. Trapeze, yeah. It, it engenders hope in everybody. So because of Diane Paulus, God bless her, I did a full out aerial act, 30 feet in the air, without a belt, without a mat, without insurance. I guess we had insurance, we knew. And I was singing no time at all at the same time. And if you do your job in your 60s, do your job, you will stop the show. And I did. And I went to my mother after she saw the matinee of Pip and I said, mommy, mommy, like a two-year-old asking for mother's milk, how did I do? And she said that you should still have to earn a living like this and on a trapeze yet. So that was my mother. When she came to see Golda Meir, the famous thing, I said, mommy, longest running one woman play in the history of Broadway in a century of theater. She said, Talvi, rate your parts by how you look. Dolly Levi was a 10. Golda Meir? Zero. So that is what I was up against. But my mother gave me my resilience. And for any child that has a parent, living or dead, since we are all the children of parents, this book is a road in to never giving up, that there is a rainbow at the end of Lilyville, that two trees which were on different different acres of land, the branches of our view of life, a mother who said you can't have it all, a daughter who lived like you could, they finally bowered and got together. And indeed, my mother did tell me she loved me. She did tell me she loved me when I was about 40. But she said one day, how much longer are you going to blame me? I was 40. And I said, not another minute. And then I just kept empowering her to have space enough to express herself verbally. And she exploded when my father died. She became the matriarch of our whole family. We have a very large family 
arriving in America in 1902. And uh, Lilyville has a happy ending. So don't any of you give up. Well, it, it does have a happy ending. It's a very beautiful, it, it's the kind of book that, that will make you cry in a, in a good way. I'm curious what your daughter thought of it. My daughter was reading it and she calls me and when she got to the death of Grampy, my father, Sydney, she said, I was hysterical, mommy. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I said, you were a little, little girl when this happened. She was in nursery school, the 92nd Street Y. And she said, Grampy left me like a balloon going up into the air. And the head mistress, the head person came to me and said, this is the poem your daughter wrote. I was very moved that Amanda was, was, has read it. My daughter-in-law, Jamie Kirklevy, has read it. And I'm hoping Brandon will make some time in his big, important career at BlackRock to read it as well. My husband, of course, read it. And I'm very touched. I, uh, Lois Cahotis, 103 years old, read it uh, and loved it. That, to me, is everything. Lois, thank you for being a Midwesterner. Thank you for being 103. And thank you for reading Lilyville. And my teachers have read it. And Elia Wax, if you're out there from Sarah Lawrence, it was my Don Elia Wax, who was the first one to tell me that I had something to write about, that I had a writer's voice. So I was very pleased about it. I am never surprised. I'm never surprised when people who are great at one art are great at five others. And I was not surprised that you wrote a beautiful book. So the book is Lilyville. And Tova Felchu, you know, if you come back a third time, you get a set of Fleischek steak knives. So we hope to have you back on Unorthodox. I would love it, Mark. Uh, again. Oh, Mark, one thing, the book, my dear friend, Jeff Harner, who is a colleague and directs me in my one woman concerts like Tova's Leona and Aging as Hobson. I wrote the manuscript. I handed it in. They said, it's great. It's not a book. So I had a heart attack. The usual do is catastrophe. And I had to, I chose to rewrite the entire manuscript. And it was Jeff Harner who came to me and said, what do you know best? And I said, I guess I know theater. I was trained in the theater. He said, write this as a theater piece. And from his brilliant, simple question and suggestion, this book is organized not in chapters, but in scenes. It's written in three acts with two intermissions. Instead of a forward, you get an overture. Instead of an afterward, you get exit music. Instead of acknowledgments, you get a cast party where I acknowledge everybody like Jeff Horner and my assistant, Oliver Scholson, and my wonderful editor, Lauren Marino, for all they did to contribute to Lilyville. God bless you. I love you guys. Your, your minds bless you are, as well. are quick fire minds. It's an honor to be with you. Takes one to know one. We love you too. Thank you so much. We love you too. Thank Thanks you for the book. <laughs> Bye-bye for now. Tova Felchu, you should check out her book, Lilyville. And also, please know that that program was sponsored by the Community Scholar Program and the Mirage Jewish Community Center in partnership with the Jewish Community Foundation, Orange County, and the Jewish Federation, Orange County. So Southern California, you brought us Tova Felchu. You brought us together with her. You made a shidduch, and we thank you for it. We'll sing out this song for years to come in a story without an end for how Nefesh Mountain is a Jewish-inspired bluegrass band 
which plays music that brings together the best of American folk with the Jewish tradition. They are awesome. And one of my great sadnesses of the year 5781 is that I could not be with Liel to sit down with the band's founders, Eric Lindbergh and Donnie Zasloff, to talk about music and to hear some tunes. It was recorded in Manhattan just a few weeks back. I was not there. I'm still angry about it, but you get to hear it now. So I have the distinct pleasure of sitting here in the studio, in person, live from New York. It's Tuesday afternoon, and I'm here <laughs> with one of my absolute favorite bands. I'm not even going to say Jewish bands, because this is just an amazing American band that did something that, you know, like all kind of instances of brilliance, it's one of these things that once you stop to think about it, you say, hmm, well, how come never, you know, no one thought about it before? Uh, and such are the husband-wife team who make up the great Nefesh Mountain. Geniuses, kindly introduce yourselves. <laughs> Genius number one, go ahead. I'm Donnie. I'm Eric. And the more importantly, we have our baby Willow, who's here two months old, right in between us in the stroller. If you hear little squeaks. So take me to the very beginning of this enterprise, because when you stop and think, oh, it's a Jewish bluegrass band, you think like, yeah, that shouldn't really be be a thing maybe but then when you hear the music you're like oh it sounds so incredibly present and again almost obvious in, in all the best blessed ways how did you guys start off with this idea with this enterprise it's a love story we met early january 2010 and we were just musicians and we played together and we did, had not started nefesh mountain yet and over the years we fell in love and our marriage and our love and our blended family and kind of we try to make music that is about our lives that is kind of coming from our our souls and donnie kind of came to me at a time in my life when i needed to feel you know more proud of my own judaism not that i wasn't proud of it but that i i really wanted to embrace more of it and i was coming from a place of i went to school for jazz performance and for i was playing tons of gigs and i was touring and i was mostly just secular music and doing that thing. And uh, our coming together is what kind of infused the pride in both of these things, this this love of early American music, bluegrass and old time and, and even jazz and a lot of stuff, and our love of Jewish culture and Jewish identity and who we are. And Donnie is a, is a unicorn, I think, in the sense of, I had never met anyone that, that had looked at being Jewish in such an outwardly, not only positive way, just in terms of anyone that she had met, but um, it wasn't only about spirituality and religion. It was just about, this is the way I live. This is who we are, unabashedly, just a love for it. And I think that's trickled down from her parents and their parents. And, and the same does go for me, but I just wasn't as used to this open love of embracing our Jewish identity. I was more in the like, there's certain things we don't talk about like when we're in public spaces, you know, <laughs> and and you just are like the wild cowgirl and, and you just seem to embrace all aspects of Jewish identity. And that, I think, has given us the starting point for the platform of what Nefesh Mountain began as. So, Donnie, how, how, did, how did you grow up? How did you come to music and Judaism intertwined in this way? I grew up very Jewy. <laughs> I went to Jewish day schools and Jewish camps. I think I went to all of them, all the Jewish camps. But I, I like fought the rabbis. I put on to fill in when I was like, you know, a teenager. And I just was like in love with it and challenging it. But it was always part of me, my Jewish soul. 
And then I've always been theatrical and musical. And, and so I think, I don't know. I don't know how this all came about other than I can say that when I, we started doing this music, I felt like I'm, I'm actually being my most honest self. But I, I grew up loving Jewish spirit, loving Jewish music, loving, loving all of it, really. Okay, as kids or teenagers, who do you, who do you listen to? Who, who moves your soul? Which musicians? You pick up the guitar and you start with like the blues and you start with some scales and stuff. And pretty soon, just for me as a fan of all, all things guitar and stringed instruments, I found my way to kind of the core of Doc Watson and great old time music and Bill Monroe and, and you know, some of the players that really played some of this great old string band music, which to me seems, if you follow these weird chains through American music, to give birth to all of it, you know, to the, the worlds of jazz and blues and rock and roll, kind of all has this core in, in old time. Is there a part of you that listens to this and says something like, this is the heart of American music. I'm kind of an outsider to it. I'm, I'm a Jew. You know, my people came from Romania or Ukraine or wherever, you know, maybe four or five generations ago. But this is not ancestral to me. This is not what the sound of my soul sounds like. Where do you find that, that spark that says, this speaks to me of something so profoundly universal and moving and in fact, might be a great vessel for my own spiritual yearnings. In my teens is when I first discovered bluegrass. And I started really listening to and being aware of what you're talking about, which is this, you know, this really big gospel tradition in the music. They, they go hand in hand. And a lot of country gospel albums and, and the great bluegrass recordings are some of the best of all time. Yet we are outsiders. And, and I felt like one listening to the music. And I think that was the little spark that made me want to go and write some music that maybe it's the troublemaker in me, but that kind of said, well, what about this? Because I'm an, I'm an American and you, you said your soul, the music that touches me and my soul is not the music of Eastern Europe. The music that really hits me is American music, the spirit of jazz and of improvisation and of bluegrass and old time and kind of seeing the mountains and the Rockies and the Smokies and this American landscape. And in a way, the American dream through the music, but it's confusing for us, you know, as American Jews is, is it assimilation or at this point, is it just who we are? And to me, it's like, we're literally singing and playing banjos and fiddles and guitar and folk songs. We're playing American music from a, at times, Jewish perspective. And there's no lie in that. So Donnie, tell me about the time where you first realized that what it is you were doing was this kind of big, explosive, revelatory vessel into your soul. It's the first time when you realized it's not just like a couple of songs that we're just sitting in the couch together writing. It's, it's actually a new way of expressing ourselves that, that takes us to other places. I think that actually Nefesh Mountain happened before we even had a name for it. Like it just came. But I remember the first show we did, somebody called us and said, I know the music you're doing. I heard you a couple of your things at a Shabbat service or something. And we want you guys to come do a concert. And then she hung up the phone and then she called back and she said, oh, and by the way, get a band. <laughs> you know, then she hung up the phone. I was like, "Hun, we need a band. Like, we're getting, we got to do this now. Like somebody, you know, it's, it's something. I guess we're on doing something. And we ended up putting a band together for the show. And, and, and then we put together a set list for the show and realized we have a lot of songs. Like, this is something. We didn't even realize that we had been doing something, I guess. And then at that performance... We did our Michamocha, which is this huge bluegrassy Michamocha. And I jumped out into the audience for that show. I forgot about this. And I started doing the horror <laughs> to this crazy bluegrass Michamocha. 
And the whole audience started joining me. So the next thing you know, we've got the band up on the stage that we just hired. You know, we didn't even have a band. And we're doing this bluegrass michamocha. And we're all dancing together. And the ruach of the bluegrass music felt so Jewish and so, like, it was like, it was real ruach, you know? And I think that in that moment, I realized, at least from this spirited, you know, it was like the same energy that we all felt doing the Havana Gila at a, at a wedding. Like, it was there in this, in this moment and in this bluegrass experience that we were having. And for me, that was kind of a, a very exciting feeling of like, wait, this is real. Like, we're really feeling this together.
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. What took us so long to catch up to bluegrass? Because I feel, you know, this attempt to capture or to seize the ruach, as you will, the, the spirit in Jewish liturgical music has been around for so long. I mean, you have, for example, Adon Olam sung to the tune of everything from the theme to Paw Patrol to, you know, Sloop John B to anything else. And yet here's a, a form of music, bluegrass, right, that is so deeply rooted in spiritual yearnings, right? There is a lot of Jesus in bluegrass. And so you would think that someone at some point would have said, oh, yeah, all, all you have to do is sort of, you know, tweak the operating system a little bit. And, and you could capture the same soul. And again, as exactly said, Eric, make it sound deeply organic and natural rather than just some kind of, of shtick. What took us so long to get to Nefesh Mountain? collectively as a universe. Well, Eric and I talk a lot about just why people are not always outwardly Jewish. You know, I think it's complicated. It is really complicated. I'm scared a little bit of of doing this music because bluegrass and this tradition that we know has so much Jesus, so much church and gospel is beloved by so many people that created it down south. And it has, you know, the traditionalists have a right to call it their own and for the people that that sang that, you know, Flat and Scruggs and Stanley Brothers and, and all the great Bill Monroe songs and, and all the great, you know, Osborne Brothers that created this style, they have a right to own the music. So it is, when we come in, we have to do it so delicately because we're not trying to like stomp on it and say, 
well, just because we're American, we get to play it too. It's it's a very delicate thing because as a fan of music and music history, I don't want to do it and rub anyone the wrong way or certainly feel like we're usurping a genre that doesn't belong to us. So the only choice that we have to do, and I think that's what makes it, first of all, I think we're the, cra- we're, the, we're the only two that are crazy enough to do this maybe. And that's why we're doing it. And I think that we're doing it as husband and wife and we get to lean on each other as we go through this kind of ever ongoing trust fall every show we do. And, and even interview is like, to me, it's a I little bit of a- I definitely couldn't do it without you. No, we that. need each other to do very, it. very, very scared. So I assume that as you're starting out, you're doing a lot of shows. A lot of them I know are in synagogues and Jewish spaces. How are the chevra uh, down there accepting this? They're like, yeah, now we're, we're going to play you some songs that don't sound like what you thought you're getting in this Kabbalah Shabbat. Well, I think that was sort of our challenge. Like at first, Nefesh Mountain was really to synagogues because that's where it's kind of started. So we were playing all Jewish communities. And the challenge we first had was, okay, now we have to introduce the Jewish community to the banjo. Like that was a whole nother, like that was our first challenge. Like how are these these synagogues going to get- His full name is Benjamin Cohen. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But it was like, that was a thing. Like people were like bluegrass, like, you know, we, so we had the challenge of introducing bluegrass to the Jewish community and the honor. And we played synagogues, by the way, where I cannot, I wasn't allowed to play the banjo on the beam. But you were allowed to play the guitar. Right. The banjo got- (laughs) So there's a big, banjo joke in there somewhere for Seriously. people who write banjo like jokes. Actually, there, there were musical directors of cantors or rabbis who said the guitar is fine but the banjo you he actually, play the we banjo. Were at, we were on a Shabbat service Saturday morning and the rabbi looked at him and said get that banjo off. It was the band and then he put and bring, the guitar was okay. I mean yeah. it happened like live during a service. Almost like the banjo itself represented Right, some unholy. It's it's roundness thing. was uh, <laughs> too, too pork-like or something. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But yeah, so we our first challenge was introducing bluegrass to the Jewish communities. Then we started having more and more concerts and gigs that were to different audiences and seculars. So then the honor we had was trying to introduce Jewish culture into the bluegrass community. And so it's it's been exciting and challenging. And, and luckily, we've been really embraced for the most part by everybody. I think we're really excited to talk about, and it's a phrase that I've been saying a lot, which is Jewish American, because I can't find a better term, which is trying to define what this music is. You know, how, like, we have a song that we dedicated to Anne Frank on our new album, and we have um, a song called A Sparrow Song, where we sing partially in Hebrew, but it's a poem that we wrote in Hebrew. So there's a lot of ways, I think, to be Jewish and not have it just be going to shul or through a holiday or through a prayer or through religion. And that is what I grew up knowing was my Jewish identity. But I think finding other ways to take pride in my, my Jewish identity through history and culture is really exciting. So tell me a bit about how this musical journey shaped you as partners and as Jews, now as parents. How is this growth through the music happening? Do you find yourself reflecting more on spiritual issues? Do you find yourself in relationship places that you might not have been in had this not been your day job? It's become everything to us. I mean, Nefesh Mountain is our our other baby. It's our passion. It's our, it is our life. It's forced us to become brave about who we are, you know, and, and pushed me into being brave about being outspoken or being open about who I am and, and my Jewish identity. It's you're an ambassador all of a sudden. A with little a big bit. Voice. And I feel so proud of it. I've had moments where I've been really scared of it. You know, I, I tell the story, but it's it was a huge moment for me 
We were doing a huge bluegrass festival in Raleigh, one of the first ones at the IBMA, uh, Wide Open Bluegrass. We were on a very impressive lineup with big bluegrass bands. There were maybe a million people in the audience. And literally. Literally. I mean, there, like, there were, was a we know that there was like one and a half million that day, at least walking yeah, around. It was like Raleigh. really a big thing. And we're, and we're about to go on. And I realized, you know, these million people are there to see bluegrass. They're not all there to see Nefesh Mountain. They don't know necessarily who we are and what we're about to do. We were about to get on the stage and I looked at Eric and I had like a panic attack. I was so scared because I thought, what's going to happen? They're, we're going to start singing in Hebrew. You know, there's so much anti-Semitism. There's so much out there right now. And I'm going to get on stage and just start singing in Hebrew. Like, what am I, are we crazy? Like I got scared. I had a panic attack. I started shaking. I looked at Eric. I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, what are we, what are we thinking? Like, what is going, what? You know, and then he just, he grabbed my hand and he's like, it's going to be okay. And I, and, and I realized, you know, I like, I'm living my life. I just, I guess I'm just going to just go for it and be authentic and just hope that it goes okay. And we walked out on the stage and I'm, you know, we do so many shows and for me to be shaking like that was not normal. And I was shaking and I started singing and I I thought everyone was going to start just leaving or maybe throwing stuff at us. I didn't know what was going to come. And I started singing and people didn't leave. And actually people started gathering around and there were some women and people in the front row that started crying. And it was more and more people came and more and more people came. And by the end, we literally got a standing ovation and I'm crying on stage. And I just had this moment of like, the world is not totally terrible. And there was something about what we were doing that was like touching people. And after the show, people were hugging us. People came up and said, you know, my, I have a father who's Jewish and my mother isn't. And I just never could find my way with it. And like, thank you. Or somebody said, I've never met Jewish people before. And like, I didn't know you guys were just like hippies. And we all play banjos. You should say that. <laughs> yeah. we're, all, we're all very talented. We all, yeah. But it, it just, <laughs> it made me beards, feel so proud of what we're doing. And it's kind of changed us. It's, it's, it made us realize that this is important. We're just channels for something that's greater than us or something, you know? So tell us, uh, what is the song you're going to play for us today? We're going to play a song from our new album. The album is called Songs for the Sparrows. And uh, it came out, actually came out a day later than our own baby Willow. Our Willow was born on June 10th and the album came out June 11th, 2021. Because we're insane. Because we're great. We didn't plan that, no. folks. But um, this is a song, you know, it's the the new year is upon us, Rosh Hashanah. And to me, this is such a, every year has always been a magical time because I love the fall and uh, I love kind of the way the seasons turn. It makes me think about life changing in this this kind of new year, new beginnings. And um, this is a song we wrote. It's called Where Oh Where. And uh, we actually wrote this up on the coast of Maine. It's a song about nature. It's about finding answers in nature. And to me, that, that just time of year, somehow, I always feel connected to the world around me during Rosh Hashanah. And this song is about that, I think. It's about hope. And it's called Where Oh Where. The sweetest songs of Miriam and her daughters They were sung beside the seas and tides So still must be out on the waters Still on the waters Where, oh 
where is the wisdom sought by the many before us? She was there inside the tree of life, so still must reside in the forest. Still in the forest, where, oh, where is the innocence from our first days in Eden? They used to rest their heads on the flower beds, so still must be there in the gardens, still in the gardens. Yeah, dee, die, dee, die, dum, die, die, dum, die, 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 dum, die. Where, oh, where's our forgiveness from the age of the flood so long ago? Under all the rain, the earth remained. So it's still in the fields and the meadows, in the fields and the meadows. Yeah, dee die, dee die, dum die, die, dum die, die, dum die. Yeah, dee die, dee die, dum die, die, dum die, die, dum die. Yeah, dee die, dee die, dum die, die, dum die, die, dum die. Yeah, dee die, dee die, dum die, die, dum die. Where, oh, where's our compassion? Is it somewhere we can discover? It's never too far, it's right where you are It's always been in the arms of each other Amensela! That was incredible. And if people want, and they must, like me, consume much more of Nefesh Mountain and become new fans, where do they find more and more of you? Head over to nefeshmountain.com. You can buy our records on the website. You can stream all the songs on Spotify, all the usual places, Apple Music, Amazon. You can get, you can actually order, you can find our new CD in Barnes & Noble, we just found out, which is a fun yeah. Songs for the Sparrows. The actual store. You can go the actual the store. store. And, and if you still want a CD, you can find it there. But head over to the website. We've got tons of videos. Get to know us a little bit. Stay in touch with us. We appreciate y'all tuning in for this. Ani, Eric, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The interview with Nefesh Mountain was recorded at the Relic Room by our old friend, audio engineer extraordinaire, Paul Ruest. All the music other than the theme this week is by Nefesh Mountain.
Hey, friends, our last bit today is a little bit of stuff that uh, we're proud to say we've produced. Those of you who listen in know that Unorthodox is now spinning off some other tablet-produced podcasts. You've got Liel's Daf Yomi podcast, Take One, in which he reads a page of Talmud every day. You've got our game show for kids, Hebrew School. And now you have this. We are here to share with you a sneak peek into our newest show, and you are going to love it. Many, many, many of you, I mean thousands of you, have read the novels of Dara Horn. She's one of the great American Jewish novelists. I mean, she's one of the great American novelists, and she happens to be a Jewish woman. And she now has a podcast that's based on her new book. It's coming out soon. It's called People Love Dead Jews, which is not only one of the best titles I've ever seen for a book, but guys, I read the book and it is phenomenal. It's, it's about how people have a, a kind of romance with Jewish nostalgia as represented by dead Jewish people, but they don't always love living Jewish people. It's, it's a powerful and beautiful book. And she has turned it into a podcast for us, for Tablet Magazine. So listen up and you can hear the first episode of Adventures with Dead Jews as we follow Dara Horn exploring why it is that the world loves Jews so long as we are dead. In 2019, I decided to put aside the novels I'd been writing for the past 20 years in order to write a book that I never wanted to write on a subject I despise. I had been haunted since I was a teenager by a brief and explosive confrontation I once had with a Holocaust survivor. And after 25 years, five novels, a PhD in Yiddish, and a dose of recent reality, I finally understood why. I'm Dara Horn, and this is Adventures with Dead Jews. When I was 16 years old, in 1993, one of the many now-defunct teen magazines gave me a plum assignment to go to Washington, D.C. and write about the newly opened United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. As we have seen already today, this museum is not for the dead alone, nor even for the survivors who have been so beautifully represented. It is perhaps most of all for those of us who were not there at all to learn the lessons, to deepen our memories and our humanity, and to transmit these lessons from generation to generation. The museum's opening was a grand event covered in the national media. More than 10 years in the making, built by private funds on federal land, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has just opened to the public. And the American Jewish community was very thrilled about it. It's an incredible tribute, okay? They've done it incredibly well. This place just makes you become the history that it, that it portrays. The opening of this massive museum just off the National Mall felt like a sort of debutante party, a monumental symbolic moment of a broad American acceptance and respect for the Jewish experience. The fact that this supposedly Jewish museum was devoted to describing how Jews were murdered was disturbing if you really thought about it. But back then, it actually felt kind of hopeful. The belief was that people would go to this museum and see where hating Jews could lead. And then, obviously, they would stop hating Jews. I wrote a rave review of that new Holocaust museum which the teen magazine published between a list of makeup tips and an article about bulimia. In my review, 
I spent a lot of time praising the museum's children's section, an exhibit called Daniel's Story. The exhibit tells the story of an imaginary child named Daniel, and museum visitors walk through different places from Daniel's life. First, you enter a mock-up of Daniel's house in Frankfurt, Germany, which looks a lot like a house in any American suburb. We lived in a house with a yard, and I had my own bedroom. Those were happy times for me and my friends. You see Daniel's soccer cleats and his soccer ball on a shelf in his room, next to his globe and his camera. Daniel's dad was a war veteran, so you see his dad's army medals too. Just past the cookies in Daniel's kitchen and the teddy bear on Daniel's bed, you move on to a street full of vandalized storefronts and signs that say no Jews allowed. In the next room, you're in a ghetto where Daniel's fancy house has been replaced with a small and shabby room. We were trapped. There were rules about everything. My family lived together in one small room. We thought it couldn't get worse than the ghetto, but it did. And by the next room, you're at Auschwitz. But this is a kid's exhibit, so it stops at the barbed wire. At the end, you're encouraged to write a note to the imaginary Daniel telling him what you've learned. As a recent child myself, I found all this quite moving. And in 1993, I still believed in the power of dead Jews to protect living ones, a belief that's actually rooted in the theology of Judaism itself. I was convinced that writing about this exhibit would help people recognize the Jews' humanity, just like the museum itself would. I couldn't imagine anything objectionable about this. So I was shocked when a random Holocaust survivor attacked me for it. When I returned from Washington, my parents took me to see some friends of theirs, and everyone was eager to hear about the brand new museum that they'd only seen on TV. I gave them my rave review, especially of the children's exhibit. One of the other guests was an older woman who I didn't know. Like many old Jews back then, she had a heavy accent and a bunch of numbers on her arm. She glared at me until I stopped talking. Then she said, a kid on a soccer team is not what died in the Holocaust. Then she started ranting about Yiddish-speaking culture, about books and theaters and yeshivas and newspapers and Hasidic dynasties and political parties and youth groups and musicians and artists and writers I'd never heard of. She shrieked at me about how I had to tell my teenage readers about what was really lost. Why, she demanded, did the museum have a soccer-playing German-speaking kid as its emblem of the children who were murdered in the Holocaust when 85% of Holocaust victims were Yiddish speakers and a huge percentage were religious Jews? Instead of soccer cleats, why didn't the boy's bedroom shelves have his volumes of the Talmud? Or his scouting uniform from his socialist youth club? Or his Hebrew songbooks from the Zionist group Hashomer Hatzair? Instead of his dad's army medals, why not dad's tefillin? Or dad's Yiddish newspapers? Or his tickets to the Yiddish theater? Was there even a mezuzah on the door of Daniel's imaginary house? 
I recently checked. There isn't. The woman kept ranting at me, but I was 16 and I had no patience for cranky old people. Instead of listening, I politely told this Holocaust survivor that she was completely wrong. What mattered most in a museum like this, I patiently explained, was that regular American children could relate to it. The whole point was to teach American kids that kids who died in the Holocaust were just like them. Then the woman shouted at me, but what if they weren't just like them? Would it have been okay to murder them if they weren't just like them? That old woman's question made me so uncomfortable that I avoided it for 25 years. I'm now a novelist and a scholar of Hebrew and Yiddish literature. And in my work, I've made a conscious choice not to focus on dead and murdered Jews. For me, Jewish identity has never been about what other people did to the Jews, but about a deep attunement to Torah and timelessness, something that has been at the center of my life since I became a weekly Torah reader at the age of 12. When I started writing novels about Jewish life in my early 20s, my goal was to build a living Jewish culture that any reader could access, one where Jews wrestled with their traditions, but where they always lived their lives on their own terms. And when I did my doctorate in Yiddish literature, I finally read the mind-expanding works of all those world-class luminaries that that old woman was ranting about, and I finally understood what was lost. I've always written nonfiction too, essays and reviews and feature pieces, usually when various editors ask me to do it. But in the past few years, I've started to notice that these editors keep asking me to write about dead Jews. And that's when that old woman's question came back into my life. In 2018, Smithsonian Magazine asked me to write an article about the world's second favorite dead Jew, Anne Frank. I really didn't want to write about Anne Frank, though I hadn't yet figured out why. Then I remembered a news item that I'd seen about the Anne Frank House, the blockbuster Amsterdam Museum that contains the tiny secret rooms where Anne Frank and her family hid from the Nazis. The news item was about a young Jewish employee at the Anne Frank House who tried to wear his yarmulke to work. His employers didn't like it, so they made him hide his yarmulke under a baseball cap. He appealed to the museum's board, which deliberated for four months before they finally relented and let him wear his yarmulke to work. To me, four months seemed like a rather long time for the Anne Frank House to ponder whether it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. I hoped this was just a PR mistake, but then I discovered another news item from the previous year, when visitors to the Anne Frank House noticed something odd about the audio guide display. Each audio guide language was represented with a national flag, a British flag next to the word English, a French flag for French, and so on, until you got to Hebrew. For Hebrew, no flag. That particular omission, which the museum eventually fixed, would surely have bothered one former resident of the Anne Frank house, Anne Frank's older sister, Margot, 
who died in Bergen-Belsen two days before her famous sister. Margot was active in a Dutch Zionist youth organization, and she planned to move to Palestine and become a midwife in the Galilee. Before going into hiding, she had been studying Hebrew to prepare for her life in a future Jewish state, a state which now has its own flag. But the museum didn't want to offend any visitors who had come to learn about the Jews' humanity. The most famous line from Anne Frank's diary is, I still believe, in spite of everything, that people are truly good at heart. That's the line that publishers and museum curators have plastered onto book jackets and painted onto walls. The line that inspires us, by which we mean it flatters us. It suggests that a murdered Jew has offered us absolution from guilt, delivering a kind of Christian grace. But the truth is much simpler. Anne Frank wrote that line about people being truly good at heart before she met people who weren't. Three weeks after writing that line, she was deported to Auschwitz. And then she met people who weren't. But that reality and the reality of living Jews was beside the point. The point of the museum was to teach people about the Jews' humanity. The humanity of the nice Jews, that is. The dead ones who spoke non-Jewish languages and played on the soccer team. Not the living ones doing yucky things like living in Israel or practicing Judaism. At that point, I realized what should have been obvious all along. People love dead Jews. Living Jews, not so much. As I thought about how these museums erased the Jewish identities of these dead and persecuted Jews, I wondered if this problem was actually unavoidable. Wouldn't any attempt to present the Holocaust to a non-Jewish audience do the same thing? In other words, when I told that cranky old lady that the only way to make dead Jews matter to the public was to erase their Jewish identity, wasn't I right? Actually, no. And one of the very first attempts at public Holocaust education took exactly the opposite approach. In the 1940s, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City created a radio program called The Eternal Light, which was broadcast nationally by NBC as part of their Sunday morning religious programming. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee... The eternal light is a little corny by today's standards. Okay, maybe a lot corny. But by today's standards, it's also almost shocking because it's so unapologetically Jewish. The eternal light told stories about King David and Queen Esther, Rabbi Akiva and Moses Maimonides. It had shows about Jews in ancient Babylonia and Jews in colonial America. It dramatized rabbinic stories and modern Hebrew fiction and Yiddish literary works. And starting in 1945, it presented a lot of dramas about the Holocaust and especially about young survivors. You cannot land, that's my orders. You would send these children back to die? I don't want to go back on the raft. There are episodes about the liberation of Buchenwald, about the Nuremberg trials, 
about Jews being murdered after the war in Polish pogroms, about survivors dying by suicide, and loads of tearjerker stories about orphaned and traumatized Jewish children. I understand, Chaplin. Here we are not admitted, and in Poland, once again, there are pogroms. I want to stay here. cried for three hours. But to me, what's most remarkable about these episodes is how aggressively Jewish they are. As said Jeremiah at the door of the king of Judah, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice. Of course, the eternal light had its own agenda. Many of these episodes ended with appeals to the audience to help survivors. And as part of NBC's religious programming that stayed on the air well into the 1960s, the show also gave American Jews a place alongside Protestants and Catholics in the Cold War fight against the godless Soviets. But what's so astonishing today is how this nationally broadcast show did not hesitate to present its Jewish characters as Jews, and especially its Jewish children. One typical episode is The Voice of Rachel, which aired on December 30th, 1945. Like Daniel's story at the Holocaust Museum, it's about a child survivor from a Western European country, in this case, an eight-year-old boy from France. But if this kid was on the soccer team, we are not hearing about it. When he arrives in New York with other Jewish orphans, he claims to remember nothing about his pre-war life. We had 132 children at the shelter. He was like all the others. And yet, Bernard was also a part. What is your second name? What was your mother's second name? Miller, you try him. Where did you live? Don't you even remember the town or the province? Miller, how are we going to help the boy? We've got nothing to go on. Just three things. His mother's name is Russell. His name is Bernard. And somewhere in America, he has an uncle. His mother's brother. That isn't enough. We're licked. Miller, see if you can make him talk. Bernard, listen. We want to help you find your uncle. Then one day, he starts singing a song that his dead mother taught him, which helps unite him with an American uncle. Bernard, I never heard that melody before. Oh, that's a nice tune, Bernard. Is that something your mother taught you? Come here, Bernard. Okay. That's a fine American vocabulary you're acquiring. Okay. Uh, don't overdo it now. Does your song have words? Oh, the story is fiction, so that song could have been anything. The show could have used a sentimental cabaret song or a French lullaby. But instead, the boy sings Hebrew words from the prophet Jeremiah. Kol barama nishma, nihi b'chi tamrurim, Rachel mevaka albaneha. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing, bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, for they are gone. 
That's how the prophet Jeremiah described the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586 BCE, when the Jewish captives being led to Babylonia passed the grave of the matriarch Rachel, who had died centuries earlier. Jeremiah imagined Mother Rachel wailing for those future generations of Jews, her children, as they passed her grave on their way into exile. Those who know that text will know the verses that follow that one. Restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from shedding tears. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall return to their borders. In the eternal light, the Holocaust isn't an unprecedented event that people try to make relatable. Instead, it's the near end of a 3,000-year-old chain, a contact point in the covenant with God, part of a long double helix of loss and renewal. This boy is singing a Hebrew prophecy, an ancient Jewish lament and a call to national Jewish resilience. On NBC, he did not need to be on the soccer team for people to listen. In the end, I did wind up writing for Smithsonian Magazine about Anne Frank. I wrote everything that I didn't write for that teen magazine years ago. I told readers about the museum's absurdities, and I told them what was really lost. The piece came out just days before the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Within hours of that attack, editors again started asking me to write about dead Jews. And then it happened again and again. These editors expected me to respond to contemporary anti-Semitic attacks by saying something sad and beautiful and inspired. You know, just like Anne Frank did. But I wasn't feeling sad and beautiful and inspired. I was feeling enraged. Not just because my community had been lethally attacked, but because I had had the sudden and infuriating realization that I had been conned. As I fielded more and more requests to write about dead Jews, I came to understand that there was a certain gaslighting going on about the Jewish past and that I was expected to participate in it. I began to see that there was something exploitative, almost perverse, about the insatiable public appetite for stories about dead Jews and the way those stories often invalidated or erased the Jewish present. So I finally gave in. Instead of avoiding this sickening topic, as I had diligently done for the past 20 years, I decided to dive directly into it to investigate the role that dead Jews play in a non-Jewish world, to learn more about exactly why people love dead Jews so much, you'll have to read my book, which is called People Love Dead Jews. In this series, though, we're going to do something a little different because, as I've discovered, the world's love for dead Jews is far too vast for one book to contain. Here, we're going to explore more behind-the-scenes stories that don't appear in my book, in part because they were almost too weird to be believable. I'm going to take you to Moscow and Cairo and New Orleans and Tokyo on our quest to discover what dead Jews mean to the world. We'll probe the connections between a blockbuster Holocaust movie and a blockbuster dinosaur movie, between an online archive 
and a medieval document dump, between traditional Jewish ritual and civil war reenactment, and between insane conspiracy theories and actual government policies. We'll meet rabbis and military officers and genius identical twins and murdered Yiddish actors and a podiatrist on the make. We'll see how dead Jews are discarded and resurrected and how living Jews have navigated this warped reality. Through it all, we'll return to that old woman's haunting question. What if dead Jews weren't just like everyone else? In Adventures with Dead Jews, we'll uncover some answers. I hope you'll find it all as disturbing as I do. That's Dara Horn. Our new podcast, Adventures with Dead Jews, is available wherever you get unorthodox. Friends, have a wonderful 5782. I wish you a Shana Tova. Come back next week for our annual apology episode. Every Yom Kippur, you know that we treat you to an episode filled with deep thoughts and some laughs about the topic of apology, teshuva, return, atonement, making things better, making ourselves better and repairing our relationships as we go into the year to come. That's next week here on Unorthodox. In the meantime, I'm not going to read all the credits. I just want to thank the production team this week. I want to thank Sara Fredman-Ader, Robert Scaramuccia, and Josh Cross. They make this happen. I mean, so does everyone at Tablet. So does Editor-in-Chief Alana Newhouse. So does Art Director Esther Werdiger. But it's Sara, Robert, and Josh who week in and week out make Unorthodox the thing that you know and keep coming back to. Podcasting is a production medium. It's the behind-the-stage people who cut away all the dreck, all of our nonsense, and make us sound good and then get it to you, into your ears. We thank you for being with us in 5781. We are excited to be with you in 5782. And as ever, we love hearing from you. Call us at 914-570-4869 or wish us a happy new year by sending your thoughts, excited, enthusiastic, critical, deploring, whatever, to tabletmag at unorthodox.com. Shana Tova, we wish you a sweet and happy new year and may you be sealed for a good one. 